0: Awesome, praise God! By the way, guys, this is Kyle. That's our worship leader this morning, and uh, I'm always so grateful when Kyle and his family are here. So let's give it up for Kyle and our worship team today. So if you notice, I'm holding I'm holding this cross. This is pretty awesome, right? So yesterday we had about 20 of our guys up here uh, downstairs in our event room, and we absolutely demolished the event room so you should go downstairs and take a look at it the drop ceilings down the the paneling is off the walls and it it looks like a a bomb went off downstairs but uh sometimes you have to destroy things in order to restore things so we're going to be doing some painting and some new fixtures some new paneling and all of these things but sometimes you have to destroy things to restore things So one of our members, this awesome brother, when I pray with Jose, I feel like I can run through a brick wall. I'm just fired up for Christ. But Jose had this big truck when he was was getting the dumpster in order to bring it out here so that we could fill it up. And so he has this big truck, one of these huge dumpsters that's as big as a house on this truck, this big, heavy truck. And he's running through a yard in this truck, like like a salvage yard, and he runs over a pallet, You know those wooden crates? And when he runs over this pallet, it destroys, I mean destroys the pallet. There is nothing left except for this. A perfect cross. It's awesome, isn't it? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And it was a reminder to Jose that Jesus was saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm for you. The pallet was destroyed and in its place was a perfect cross cross so it is with our study today we are continuing in the life of joseph and we're going to see that for all practical purposes it looks like joseph's life is being destroyed but what god is doing is creating a perfect example of his son christ and Joseph is an instrument in the master plan of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that's going to save not only himself, but his entire people from starvation, the entire world, from starvation. But not only that, he's going to, in saving his people, perpetuate a lineage in which Christ will save the entire world. But it felt like Joseph's life was being crushed. It felt like his life was being destroyed. If you remember last week, Joseph was despised by his brothers because he was the dad's favorite. And then Joseph had this dream that all the brothers would bow down before him. And then he had another dream that his brothers and his mom and dad would bow down before him. He was still growing in perhaps humility, diplomacy, because he was proud of that dream. And he told them all, and they didn't share their, his excitement for the dream. And they began plotting on how they could destroy him, how they could kill him. But finally they said, okay, we're not going to kill him, we're just going to, after they threw him in the pits, they said, we'll just sell him as a slave. And that's exactly what they did, and that's how Genesis chapter 37 ended last week with Joseph's life that seemed to be on a downward spiral, but what Joseph realized is what we realize, that when circumstances seem to be crushing us, when it seems that our life is on a downward spiral, it's actually a catapult to launch us into God's greatest purposes and calling for our life. You see, sometimes God's delivers us from the storm as you recall the disciples cried out in the midst of a literal storm lord save us and jesus arose rebuked the wind and it was calm and they praised god and that's awesome when god delivers us from the storm but sometimes god delivers us through the storm Such was the case with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace, but if you recall, there was a fourth person there, Jesus himself, in the Old Testament, and God delivered them through the fire, and as a result of that, everybody praised God, and the nation experienced a revival. If you recall, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison, sometimes God saves us from the prison but in this particular instance God saved them through the prison and they pray and praised pray and praised and as a result the Jeller was saved his family was saved all the other prisoners were saved how many of you would rather be saved from the fire or through the fire <laughs> I would rather be saved from the fire wouldn't you I would, I would rather be saved from the storm but when we are saved through the fire when we are saved through the storm People don't simply hear us talking about Jesus and giving our testimonies. They listen to us. They listen to us. We can be saved from the storm. We can stand on the mountaintop. We can praise God and people hear us and they say, yeah, that's cool. But when we're saved through this storm and we praise Jesus through this storm and he delivers us in his time and in his way, people don't simply hear us. They listen. And they notice, and they can't help but deny that God is with us. So where I think that we would all agree that we would rather be saved from the storm, I believe that God gets the greatest glory. Our character most reflects Christ when we're saved through the storm, and we pray, and we praise, and we reflect Christ, and God delivers in His time and in His way. So let's pick up with Genesis chapter 39, if you recall, last week we were in Genesis chapter 37, but we're going to skip Genesis chapter 38 for a reason, but now let's pick up in Genesis chapter 39, and we're going to see why we skipped Genesis chapter 38. We'll get there in a second. Genesis chapter 38, it's one of those chapters that just kind of, when you read it and you understand what's going on, you just feel kind of gross, and you just want to maybe take a shower, you know, you just want to be clean after you read Genesis chapter 38. Now let's read Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Do you recall, rather than killing him in Genesis chapter 37, they said, we're just going to sell him. They despised him. They hated him. Now, when his brothers sold him as a slave, he was about 17 years of age. How old he is at this point, we don't know. Now, we know that later in the book of Genesis, when he goes from a little sneak peek, when he goes from the pit to to Potiphar's house, to the prison, to the palace, that he's about 34 years of age. So right now, when he was sold, he was about, as a slave, he was about 17. How old he was when he was auctioned off, we don't quite know. How long he was in uh, Potiphar's house, who was this Egyptian ruler, we don't quite know, but he was probably there about 11 years. And the captain of the guard, the Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, so Joseph was bought as a slave by a very powerful man, by a very rich man named Potiphar. And the Lord was with Joseph. Remember that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph? And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him. There's that phrase again. And the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Sometimes God describes the essence of an entire person's life in one sentence. If you recall, David was a man after my own heart. If you recall, Saul to Paul was a man who was going to experience great suffering for the sake of the gospel, and God's grace would be sufficient for him. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, and Joseph's life can be—or were the sons of thunder—and Joseph's life can be described, the essence of his life, his life theme, in this one statement, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. That was his anointing. That was his calling. That was what set him apart. The Lord was with him. And I pray that by the end of the service and by the end of the time that we partake of communion together, we would have a singular ambition, and that would be that we would be characterized by this phrase, by this statement, the Lord is with us. And there's three reasons, I believe, as we continue to unpack Genesis chapter 39, that the Lord was with Joseph. The first is that Joseph had a passion for Christ's presence. He knew that he was set apart. He knew he was distinct. He knew there was something that was different about him. He knew that everything he did was somehow, some way, blessed and better as a result of it. And the people around him were blessed and better because of it. And he knew that it was because God's hand was on his life, he was called, he was chosen, he was anointed, and it was because the Lord was with him. So let's continue reading. Verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands— So Joseph found favor favor in his sight, the sight of his master, this powerful Egyptian ruler, and attended him. And watch what happened. Now, we we read this so quickly because we just read chapter 37, and now we're in chapter 39, so we think this is overnight. But there's no reason to believe that Joseph, a poor Hebrew shepherd boy, would understand the Egyptian language, there's no reason to think that the people from Egypt that Joseph is communicating with would take the time to understand this peasant's Hebrew language. So he's obviously here for a matter of time. He's understanding the language. He's learning the language. He, he's proving himself. His master is observing him long enough so that Joseph finally rises through the ranks so that... Verse 5, from that time, Potiphar, the Egyptian ruler, made Joseph overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, because because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Can you imagine that? How are we going to plow the 50 acres to the west of the house what are we going to do about the flood of the 25 acres to the to the east of the house what are we going to do about payroll what are we going to do about these bills what are we going to do about this crisis what are we going to do about this conflict what are we going to do about this administrative decision Potiphar had to worry about none of that, because Joseph excelled in everything he did. He had such a gift of leadership, such a gift of administration, such a gift of diplomacy by this point, such a gift of communication, that Potiphar had to worry about nothing except for what he was going to eat. And Potiphar realized that Joseph being in charge was better than if he himself were in charge, so that Potiphar's house continued to expand and to be blessed— And Potiphar was just like, I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. And before he went to bed, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to have for breakfast in the morning. Joseph was so gifted, and all of this was because God was on him. Now, let's contrast this with Genesis chapter 38. I kind of hate to read the chapter. I'll I'll just sort of explain what happens. Joseph's oldest brother, Judah, one of the brothers who wanted Joseph to be killed, continues to live his life. Joseph was thrown into a pit. Joseph was sold as a slave. Joseph is, is a servant. Joseph has no freedom. He can't just leave and travel across the country if he wants to, because he's a slave. He's got to run everything by his master, Potiphar. Judah, on the other hand is a free man, but we see that Judah, in his freedom, was enslaved and far from God's will and God's hand was far from on him, and Joseph, in his bondage, was free because Joseph had one singular passion, and that was God's presence to remain on him. Judah's son was so wicked that God took him out, and there was a law you might be familiar with uh, because of the book of Ruth called the law of kinsman redemption, so that the widow went to her father-in-law and said i don't have any kids i have to now marry another one of your sons so she marries another one of his sons he gives her no children and god takes him out and then she now goes to her father-in-law and says you have to give me your third son at this point he's a little bit leery about this and he says no i'm not going to do it you just live your life i'll live my life She's so indignant about it, she disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah, this dad, he has relations with his daughter-in-law, thinking that she's a prostitute because she covered her face, and then he had no money to pay, so he said, here, I'll just give you my cloak, and this will be collateral, I'll come back for it. And then, wouldn't you know it, that she's nowhere to be found? And he says, ah, oh well, I guess I don't have to pay for that prostitute. And then she turns up pregnant... By her father-in-law. He doesn't know it's his kid. He doesn't even know he had sexual relations with her. And so she's, she's just paraded out in public, and she says, what should we do with your daughter-in-law? She's pregnant. She's not married. And he says, easy, kill her. And then she steps forward and says, Who's, who does this cloak belong to? Because this is the father of my child. He's not so judgmental at this point. And he's like, oh, okay, my bad. <laughs> Forget it. Why was that in there? I believe one of the reasons is to provide a contrast between Judah, a free man, a free man who's living in bondage, who's joyless. God's hand isn't on him with Joseph, who's in bondage but living a free man because God's hand is on him, because he has a singular passion for God's presence to rest heavily upon his life. Judah had a singular passion, and that's whatever his flesh might have desired, whatever whimsical desire he may have had, was Judah's passion. Joseph's passion was for the glory of God to be manifest through him. There's Judah. There's Joseph. Which of these men more closely resemble your heart and your mind? You see, everybody thought that Judah was this great man, and yet he was far from God in his heart. It is far better to be thought a scoundrel but have integrity than to be thought a person with integrity but have a heart that's a scoundrel. So do you more closely resemble Joseph or Judah? Joseph's passion was for Christ's presence to rest heavily upon him. Secondly, Joseph's passion was for Christ's purity to forge his character. Let's continue to read. Genesis chapter 39, and we'll pick up in verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now let's understand a little about Joseph's situation. He's far from home. Some people could look at Joseph's life and say, God has abandoned you. You thought you had a dream. What's going to become of that dream now? He's a young man. He has these youthful passions. He's a a servant in the house of Potiphar. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a relationship. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife, who's his master? His master's Potiphar. He's a powerful man, and in this culture, this powerful man could choose any woman that he want. She, we would ascertain, is a beautiful woman, and she cast eyes on Joseph. He's handsome in form and appearance, and she says, "Lie with me." This is a major temptation. And what does he do? Verse 8. But he refused. And I just want to share a handful of reasons that Joseph maintained such integrity. He maintained such a culture. We know from texts, even outside of Scripture, that in this culture, in this day, in this age, Egyptian women were known for being promiscuous. It was a very immoral culture, sexually speaking. And here's this Hebrew in a culture, you know, the saying... When in Rome, do as the Romans do, that kind of thing. Or what what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. None of those things were anywhere in Joseph's heart and mind because his passion was for Christ's presence to rest upon him. His passion was for Christ's purity to be reflected in his own integrity. And I believe that the life of Joseph gives us a handful of ways in which some tools in our skill set to walk in holiness, not only in action but in heart, in desire, so that we don't just do the right thing, but we do the right thing for the right reason. The first skill set that Joseph displays that enabled him to walk in righteousness is that Joseph honored boundaries. He honored boundaries. Let's look at chapter 39, verse 8 and 9. But he refused. Why did he refuse? He refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. And he is not greater in this house than I am, and, or is he not greater in this house than I am? Nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. So he understood boundaries and this was how he was able to maintain his integrity this is how he was able to maintain his character You see, some people are simply concerned about road A, that road that definitely leads to all-out sin, that road that definitely leads to drunkenness, or that road that definitely leads to an affair. Joseph, more than that, he was concerned about road B. What's that road that leads to road A? I'm not even going to worry about road A because I'm going to stay off of road B that leads to road A. Because if I can stay off road B that leads to road A I know it definitely won't go down road A. Road A is a sin, no doubt about that. Road B is not a sin, but road B leads to road A, so in my conscience road B is a sin. Joseph had boundaries. He stayed away not just from road A, he stayed away from road B. We read in Proverbs chapter 5 verse 8. Keep your way far from her. In other words, don't flirt with temptation. Don't even go near the door of her house. Joseph didn't have a heart to flirt with temptation. Oh, I'll just just compromise. I'll just, you know, maybe have a conversation with her. He stayed away from her. He was avoiding road B. How are your boundaries? Are your boundaries etched out? Is there character, is there integrity around your boundaries? Are they above reproach? Secondly, Joseph called sin, sin. He goes on in verse 9 to say, he is, not, he, he is not greater in this house than I am, is he not? Nor has he kept back anything except you, because you are his wife. And then watch this, he calls sin, sin. How then can I do this wicked thing against God? And a culture that doesn't call sin sin in a culture that's so politically correct and a culture that's so diplomatic that we wouldn't say anything to offend anybody Joseph is absolutely offending this woman he's not intentionally offending this woman but he's calling truth truth and he's saying I can't cross a boundary for one secondly Even if if that weren't a boundary, there's still a higher authority, and this is my God. I can't sin against my boss. Secondly, I can't sin against God, because this is a wicked thing he calls sin, sin. Notice the contrast between Adam and Eve and Joseph. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and God said you can eat from any tree except for this one. And that's the one that Eve made a beeline to. But look at Joseph. He could have anything in Potiphar's household except for his wife. But he didn't make a beeline for the wife. He was trying to stay as far away from her as he could because he understood boundaries and he called sin, sin. And he wasn't going to grieve the heart of God. Thirdly, Joseph models replacing our thought process. Replacing our thought process, verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph, watch this, day after day. This wasn't just like like one grand slam resistance of temptation. She continued to badger him day after day after day. She was trying to wear him down. She was seducing him. But he never gave in. And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her. To lie beside her or to be with her. And I believe that the secret to Joseph's success in resisting temptation day after day after day after day after day, after day was not simply resisting in his thoughts I'm gonna, resist, I'm gonna resist, I'm gonna resist, I'm gonna resist, I'm gonna resist her, I'm gonna resist her, I'm gonna resist her, I'm gonna resist her. Because if all you do is resist temptation, what are you thinking about the temptation? So holiness in our heart and mind, sexual purity consequently in our life is one, not simply by resisting, 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 because if all we're doing is resisting, we're thinking about the very thing that we're not supposed to be doing. And the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. It's not simply about resisting, resisting temptation. Yes, in Jesus' name, we cast down thoughts that are not consistent with the character of Christ. But more than that, we replace those thoughts. We must replace those thoughts with higher thoughts. Thoughts of gratefulness towards God. Thoughts of worship. Thoughts of what God wants to do in our life. Thoughts of what God is going to do for us and through us. Matthew chapter 15, verse 16 through 19. Jesus says and talking about holiness. He explains that holiness and righteousness is so much more than simply resisting, resisting. It's replacing. He says, consider the food that you eat. A man is what he eats. Did you guys see Super Size Me? The guy who ate nothing but McDonald's for however long it was. And he was in horrible shape. And he looked horrible. And in the same way, Jesus said, so does other heart and mind. You are What you meditate upon, you are what you think about. So think about holy things, and your heart is going to be filled with holiness. Think about worshipful things. Think about God's plan for your life. Think about God's calling on your life. Think about the blessings that He is going to bless you with, and your heart will be filled with righteousness. We read in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, finally, my brothers, Whatsoever things are true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's anything excellent in these thoughts, if there's anything praiseworthy, think about such things. So, and let's keep this verse up for a moment. So you see, it's not simply about resisting, resisting, resisting. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If all we're doing is resisting, we're thinking about what we are not supposed to be thinking about. But it's also replacing that's why we have to be in the word every day. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way clean by taking heed according to your word? I open my, pant, my, my, my mouth daily and pant, longing for your commands. Thy word is the bread of life. The spirit of Christ is the living water. How can I find satisfaction in a dry and weary land? By delighting myself in Christ. So how's your thought life? How's, your, how's the contemplations and the meditations of your heart? Joseph replaced his thoughts with God-honoring, praiseworthy thoughts. Fourthly, Joseph didn't mess around with things. He simply fled from sexual immorality. He ran from it. So often, we have this thought process. How close can I get to the edge without falling in? You know, if this is sin and I'm a child of God... How close can I get to the edge? And if we are that casual about temptation, I promise, it is just a matter of time before you fall in. Now, fire is awesome, right? Fire gives warmth. Fire gives light. Fire is great when fire is in the fireplace. But what happens when fire gets out of the fireplace? What happens when fire is on fire? the rug and on the couch and on the walls. Fire is no longer warm and comforting and life-giving. Fire is destructive, and so it is with sexual relations. It is a gift from God specifically designed for the marriage covenant. And if that temptation, if, if that if that gift gets outside of the fireplace, the marriage covenant it absolutely destroys it absolutely destroys proverbs chapter 6 verse 27 and 29 can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched so it is with he who goes into his neighbor's wife none who touch her will go unpunished And Joseph understood this. And so, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8, reflects Joseph's life. Wisdom cries out to the young man and says, keep your way far from her. Don't even go near the door of her house. Don't play this game. How close can I get before I fall in? Get as far away from sin, as far away from lust, as far away from immorality as you can. And don't simply resist thoughts. Replace your thoughts with everything that's honorable and praiseworthy and of good rapport. So... Let's continue reading. And she spoke to Joseph day after day, but he would not listen to her. And why wouldn't he listen to her? Because Joseph had wisdom. There are some, there are some battles that God equips us to be stronger than. But when I look, out, look through the corridor of history and church history, I realize that sexual immorality is not one of those battles. God has not called any man, woman, or teen to be stronger than sexual temptation. God has called us to be faster than sexual temptation. He has not called us to go toe to toe with sexual temptation like David stands toe to toe against Goliath. He's called us to be faster than sexual temptation and to run away from it as fast and as far as you can get. That's wisdom. Joseph didn't play games. He didn't try to console her. He didn't try to counsel her. He didn't try to comfort her. He was trying to get away from her because he understood he wasn't supposed to be stronger than sexual temptation. He's supposed to be faster than sexual temptation. And this is why Joseph is set apart in Scripture as somebody with incredible wisdom. He had the wisdom to know he wasn't to be stronger. He was only supposed to be faster than sexual temptation. So he ran. But this woman had such an ego that she said, no, 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 no No man is going to resist me. He's resisted me day after day after day after day. No man is going to resist me. We pick up in verse 11. But one day he went into his house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. No doubt she orchestrated that. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled, and he got out of the house. But he left the garment there. Now, Joseph is incredibly wise. He's incredibly discerning. No doubt he knows, oh, my gosh, what's she going to say? And whatever she says, she's going to validate it because it's going to be validated in the eyes of other people because she has my garment. Did he try to go back to get his garment? No, because he has wisdom, because he's placing more trust in God than anything in this world. So he just kept running And that's because this is the third characteristic of Joseph's passion. He had a passion for Christ's presence. Secondly, he had a passion for Christ's purity. Thirdly, he had a passion for Christ's plan. Let's continue to read verse 13. And as soon as she saw that that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, verse 14, what does she do? She starts screaming rape. She called to the men of the household and said to them, see, he's brought among us, talking about her husband, she's screaming rape, she's indignant because she was rejected, she has the garment, and she's blaming her husband for it. See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as he heard it, I lifted up my voice and cried out, and he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment, then she, she laid up by his garment, then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, this Hebrew servant, again casting blame, whom you've brought among us, came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice, cried, and he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. This, this could mean the death penalty for Joseph but he's placing his confidence in his God, not in anything else. You see, reality is, Joseph was a man who would rather be executed than to violate his conscience before God and to cross boundaries that God has clearly established for him. Verse 19. Now, I'm just reading between the lines, but because Joseph is not executed, I tend to believe that Potiphar knew that his wife was lying. I believe that he trusted Joseph's character greatly. So instead of having him executed, he had to do something to protect his name and his image in the sight of people, or so he thought. So this is the way that your servant treat me. And his anger was kindled. Maybe it was kindled at Joseph. Maybe it was kindled at his wife. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21. But the Lord, here it is again. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prisoners. There it is again. From his home into the pit, from the pit into being a slave in Potiphar's house. And from Potiphar's house, he's cast into prison. But God is with him. Let's again contrast this with Genesis chapter 38, Joseph's oldest brother, Judah, who was free but really in bondage and didn't care about God's presence, God's purity, or God's plan. All he cared about were the whims of his passion, not so for Joseph. All Joseph cared about was God's presence, God's purity, and God's plan, and in God's plan, Joseph rested. And Joseph realized that it didn't matter if he was in a pit, if he was a slave, or if he was in prison. As long as he had Christ's presence, as long as he was walking in his heart and his mind, not to mention his life, in Christ's purity, as long as his heart was at rest in God's master plan, then God had him. God was going to cover him, God was going to bless him, God was going to protect him, God was going to honor him, and God was going to catapult him into that original dream that he had in Genesis chapter 37, and that's exactly what happened. So we're going to leave our hero off in prison, but not forgotten by God. Forgotten by the world, written off by the world, but not by God, because he has a singular passion, and that's Christ's presence, Christ's purity. And his heart is at rest in Christ's plan. And the entire book of Genesis, or the entire story of Genesis, I believe, can be summarized in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where we're going to see that Joseph has a reunion, sovereign reunion with his brothers that scares his 11 brothers to death, or his 10 brothers to death. The youngest one's not included in this reunion yet. And Joseph says to them, As for you, you meant it evil, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Because Joseph was so passionate about Christ's presence, Christ's purity, and because his heart was at rest in God's plan, then God took every attack, every lie, every slander, every hateful act that was ever ever infiltrated upon Joseph, and he turned it into a blessing. And he turned it into a blessing. We can cross-reference that. I think the New Testament equivalent of Genesis fifty twenty is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good and according to his purpose. In Joseph's life, as we talked about last week, because he was in such pursuit of Christ's presence and purity and at rest... In God's plan, Joseph's life was a direct parallel to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see, Joseph will ultimately be exalted to a position that he saves through his gifts, serving under the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, to save an entire world, specifically his family, From starvation, which means the lineage of Christ will perpetuate and eventually Jesus Christ will be born. And because of that, you and I are here today worshiping Jesus. And God used a young man that was written off and forgotten by the entire world. He used His life is a tool to allow the entire world to one day call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And here we are today. We owe a debt of gratitude for Joseph's integrity. And there's no doubt that at that moment, in the present tense, this, this poor Hebrew kid who went from the pit to being a slave to prison, hated, despised lied about, slandered ruthlessly. You look at me and you think, and you, you look at those circumstances and you think, how could God possibly use that? God. God is bigger than anything that can come against us. And no matter what comes against us, if we keep our eyes on Jesus and pursue His presence to flow from our life and pursue personal purity and allow our heart to be at rest in God's plan. God will use it to bring about His purpose. He will use our Christ-like integrity to bring about His purpose so that other people around us will come to know Christ as well. So would you stand with me, please? And we're just going to enter into worship and the... Juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken. And as you partake of communion, I just want to encourage you to repent of anything in your heart and mind that may have become casual to the things of God. And cast down thoughts, go further than resisting thoughts, replace thoughts with thoughts of worship. Which means we have to be in the word every single day because as Jesus said, as a man eats, so he is. And as a man thinks, as a man meditates, as a man ponders, so he is. So we have to be in the word every single day. We have to be prayerful. We have to be seeking Christ. Like Joseph, we live in a society that is very casual, with sex. We live in a society in which we are constantly bombarded with temptations. And it's not enough to resist. It's not enough to be casual to see how close that we can get. We have to run. Perhaps you need to stop trying to be stronger than sexual temptation. And like Joseph, just be wiser. Just be faster. Just be holy. Just be pure. Seek Christ. King Solomon. The wealthiest king who ever lived the wisest king until he went off on the deep end but praise god he wrote ecclesiastes and he came back and he declared he said i bought everything you could buy i indulged myself in every way that you could indulge yourself i had every wife i could have from every culture you could imagine and it's all vanity It's meaningless, 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 meaningless. Nothing in this world can satisfy. There's only one thing that matters, and that's fearing God. That's it. It's the only thing that will allow your life to count. That's the only thing that will allow you to have satisfaction. You have got to fear God. Fear Him. That means to obey Him. That means to desire His words more than anything in this world. And to act upon those words and to live those words out. And as we do that, the Bible says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Our faith is expanded as we indulge ourselves in the Word of God, and our heart is satisfied. Like, you could, you could look at me all day long, and you could be mad at me, and you could say, I'm just frustrated at life, because you're like, I'm not losing any weight, and I'm not getting any stronger, and I'd say, well, are you eating right, and are you exercising? He's like, well, no. And I'm like, well, what do you think? And in the same way, you could say, my heart is still not satisfied, and my faith in Christ is not as bold as a line. And I would say to that, are you exercising? Are you in the Word? Are you eating right? Are Are you fleeing from temptation? Are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Are you walking in wisdom? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. As our muscles must be exercised to grow, so our faith must be exercised to grow. And our faith is exercised by being in the Word, believing the Word, putting God to the test, acting upon the Word, and experiencing God's faithfulness time and time and time and time and time and time time again. So let's partake of communion. And as we do, just cleanse your heart. Just pray, God, renew my heart. And you might even pray, Lord, my life is going to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. You want to stand out in your school? You want to stand out in work? You want to stand out in this world for Christ? Then don't get close. Flee. Flee from temptation. Get as far away from it. Don't try to be stronger. Just be smarter. Be faster. Be wiser. Get away from it. Let's follow the example of Joseph, who was a type of Christ. Flee from temptation. Get away from it. Let's bow our heads. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would take our minds and renew it as we partake of communion and continue worshiping in you. Take our heart and transform it, Lord, as we partake of communion and devote ourselves to you. Take our lives, Lord, and just transform it. Make us a new person from the inside out and shine through us. Let us, like Joseph, be characterized as a person that God is with. God is on us. And God is for us, and everything that we touch is anointed because you're with us and you're for us. So the altars are open, and you can come forward and just take the juice and the bread, and you can take it back to your seats. You can can utilize this stage up here as an altar and just partake of it, and then we'll just all continue to worship Christ.